You're listening to Free Your Inner Guru, a podcast for big-hearted leaders making a meaningful impact in the world. We dive deep into conversations about conscious leadership, choosing a life of personal growth, spirituality, and the self-help industry, so you can connect to your inner wisdom and become the leader you want to see in the world. To engage with the Free Your Inner Guru community online, you can find me, your host, Laura Tucker, and the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can also become a supporting patron or an active member of our private online community at patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. I am super pleased to release this conversation with Brad Warner this week. Finally, I've been hanging on to it for quite some time. I've always had a particular sense of timing about it, and uh, I'll share more uh, about the context in a moment. But first, I want to introduce Brad. So Brad Warner is a Soto Zen priest. He's also a bass guitarist, and he plays for the punk band Zero Defects. He's an author, and he founded and runs the Angel City Zen Center in Los Angeles. His latest book, The reason why we sat down to do the interview is uh, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. And in the book, he introduces us to Zen Buddhism through the perspective of letters that he's written to his friend, Marky, who has died of cancer. And he's not just talking to Marky, he's talking to you, the reader, in this frank and fun and candid tone that we all know because it's how we talk to our best friends. And um, so it was a particularly enjoyable read, and I really related to it because I have a very close friend who passed away, and I have conversations with her all the time that sound kind of like that. So that was fun and um, synchronistic. Now, the timing of all of this is also I think relevant. We recorded this conversation three days after I sat for an interview for what has become the Wondery podcast called Guru, the Dark Side of Enlightenment. And uh, so I had just spent a day talking about the events of October 2009 when I was at a retreat called Spiritual Warrior. There was a sweat lodge ceremony and three of my fellow participants died. It was very tragic. It was a very difficult thing. And uh, there I was three days later speaking with a spiritual leader, um, having this extraordinary conversation that started to go towards some of the issues that I care very deeply about. One being that um, self-help and spirituality is not just prescriptive based on what somebody else has done or works for them. So, you know, we get into a talk about meditation and I got a bit of a schooling on why we shouldn't just be telling everybody to meditate. Some people it's not that great an idea for. So that was very, as we say, enlightening for me to hear that. And we also spoke about the role of altered states. Um, as particular in, in Brad's concern, he's got quite a number of thoughts and opinions on on using drugs to induce an altered state in order to reach a higher level of consciousness. And um, and I have 
been involved in a number of activities that were more physical in nature, but the conversation is the same. It's it's about whether or not this actually achieves the goal and uh, and whether or not it's an effective, authentic way. So in between now and those particular topics, we get a great education into what makes Zen Buddhism different from other types of Buddhism and also some of the the very um, core principles that have been potentially, we could say, co-opted into the self-help movement. So it's super interesting. Um, and it was really great to talk to a spiritual leader who runs counterculture. And I appreciated his frankness and as much as I enjoyed the book. So um, I want to encourage you to either go over to his website or his YouTube channel where I still, I listen in regularly. I like what he does there. And also to check out this fun, informative, poignant, endearing book that's not your typical you know, spirituality 101 introduction. It's in the form of a great story, and I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I did. So on that note, I give you Brad Warner. It's my pleasure this week to welcome Brad Warner, author of Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, and Brad, just welcome to the Free Your Inner Guru podcast. I am I am so excited to have you here today and uh, and jump into a great big conversation about the book and also about Zen. Thank you. It's great to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. So I'll share with you that I finished the book last night, and uh, we were talking before we started this recording that my usual process is to get halfway, send the link out to schedule the interview, and then finish up. And you have written such a beautiful tribute to both Zen Buddhism and friendship. And I wanted to start off by bringing that into this space where, where because this is very much every single chapter is a letter to a friend. It's such an intimate discussion. Um, why did you choose? You have other books, but this book is yeah. my first exposure to you. So why did you choose to, to go this route this time? Well, it's the, the story is I had pitched my publishers on this book called Zen 101 that was going to be like a basic introduction to Zen philosophy and practice because I, I felt like my last few books had gotten a little bit too deep uh, sometimes and I uh, I couldn't get through I, I couldn't get the book going and I in search of inspiration as as the book says, I travel through Europe every year doing these tours where I lead retreats and things. And I also keep a little diary with me when I'm touring and just write down what's happening during the day. And a friend of mine who who I I use a I, I didn't use his real name, but I call him Marky in the book, as you know. Uh, I I um, he died uh, while I was on this tour of Europe uh, in 2014. He had had cancer for about two, I think all, close to three years since his diagnosis. So I'd visited him a couple of times during his illness and spent like a week each time with him. And uh, when I when I had set out on this tour, I'd been hearing bad things about how, how it was going. I hadn't seen him for a couple of months. 
And I thought, mm, he's, probably, he's probably not going to make it. And, and sure enough, he, he passed away during the tour, and I got an email about that. At, that really threw me, and this is, this is also in the book, but I, it really threw me. And I went, uh, I was walking in Hamburg. I was in Hamburg, Germany at the time, and I sat in this pizza shop writing uh, my diary. The, the thing I wrote turned out to be almost in the form of a letter to my friend who just died. The, uh, and I, I was looking through these old diaries and I came across that and I thought, oh, that's it, what, what you read in the book as chapter one is almost verbatim from that diary entry. I changed it a little bit because mainly because my, uh, my editor had said, oh, this is really this is really heavy, <laughs> you know, and he, he kind of asked me to maybe tone it down in some places because I was really kind of overwhelmed at the moment that I wrote it. Uh, so, you know, I toned it down a little bit, but it's pretty much exactly what I wrote. Um, and I just thought when I saw that, what about just continuing that? Because the the it was a kind of thing like, I wish I told you all this stuff. Maybe it would have helped. I don't know. And I just decided to continue that uh, for the entire book and write it as a series of letters. And I really, although it's a slightly a, 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 a literary conceit, I guess is the word for it. I tried to write each one just exactly as I would write it if, if I thought, you know, I just sort of put me my, myself in a position where I'm just saying, I'm just going to pretend he can read this, uh, you know, wherever he is. And I'm going to write it exactly as I would write it if 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 he could read it. And then I had to kind of go back and and uh, add a few things here and there that the reader wouldn't know about, you know, so to make it more of a complete picture. But the first drafts of every letter were exactly as I would have written uh, to this person who passed away. I think that's one of the reasons why it resonated so strongly with me right out right from the very beginning. Mm. Um, and, and one was the, was the way that that grief, even though, even if it was toned down the way that it resonated as, as, as true. And yeah, well, uh, it was real. <laughs> it was, I mean, and, yeah. and I received, I received it as that. And I, I lost my best childhood friend oh. um, when we were both 38. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah. So that I, I literally, read two pages and then I brought it with us on a trip to Europe. And wow. uh, yeah, yeah. Cause <laughs> so you like, read it in Europe and it's all written as if it's written. Absolutely. Europe, so it's Absolutely. So, and, uh, and then um, there was something that you wrote on page four that I'm going to, I'm going to just read to you. I have it here in my notes okay. and this is literally, you had me on at, uh, at page four. All and right. it's not, that's not to, to do with the is. friend. <laughs> that's not the friend that's jumping right into really my wheelhouse, which is what most people call spirituality is bullshit. And here I have dedicated my life to something most people call spiritual practices. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of how I feel about it. Sometimes I, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't get into Zen Buddhism because I wanted to be Mr. Spiritual Zen guy. I, there are people who do that. And I, you know, I think that's okay. But uh, that wasn't the case for me. I was really kind of cynical about religion and spirituality in general. And, and I'd been trying for a few years before I discovered Zen 
to find some sort of a spiritual path, you know, and I, it's kind of, it's kind of weird because I, I was a teenager, but I was this kind of like, you know, cranky, sullen teenager. And I, um, everything I, everything I encountered was just such, just so I, I just couldn't buy it, you know? And, and the Zen thing got me because it, it was really, really honest, you know, like super honest. And, and when, when the Zen teachers don't know, they go, I don't know, <laughs> you know, which I, which was so refreshing to, to hear because I'd, I'd been hearing from so many people who said they knew things that I thought nobody knows that, you know? Uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of how I feel. And and also writing to this particular friend, the the to the Marky in the book, I he was like me. He was like me, but he didn't, didn't never found anything, you know. So he was sort of inclined to ponder the bigger questions of life, but nothing had ever, you know, pulled, there was no path for him, you know. And I think there's a lot of people like that, and uh, I don't know. That's. So I would think that that somebody like him would think, "Wow, oh, what an idiot going out to temples and meditating all day." But uh, and I would think, "What an idiot going out to temples and meditating all day if I hadn't done it," you know. So uh, so that's uh, yeah, that's where that comes from. And at what point did you decide to make this? Um, as you said, I'll, I'll just use your own words because I don't want to put any other labels on it. Um, what, at what point did you decide to to make that the focus of your life or to dedicate your life to it? What point? Uh, it's it's hard to say because I started in the early '80s and I was in my late teens or maybe I was 20 by the time I started. And I initially I, I found the zazen practice to be really really useful, you know, and I and I liked the way it made life feel a little bit more manageable. But, um, you know, I was sort of not sold on the spirituality of it or the dedicating my life to it. I just did Zazen every day. You know, I just, I just sat and did it. And, and a few times during that period, I gave up on it going, well, I did that for a while. I, I guess I'm done with it. And every time I stopped doing Zazen, I, I just felt worse. You know, all the, all the sort of noise and fizz in my head came back and I went, ah, oh, I better do the Zazen again. And, and I just start doing it again. And I guess, I, I don't know if I ever said, I'm going to commit my life to this. It was more like I looked at my own past and went, gosh, I've committed my life to this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and this is what I do now. You know, I, I, I do it full time now, which, which I never would have expected. I, I didn't, I didn't set off to be a monk or to be a, I wanted to be a writer for a long time, uh, but I sort of imagined myself as, as uh, writing science fiction or something, you know, I didn't, or, or maybe um, getting into screenwriting or something like that. That's was sort of my dream. Uh, writing about Zen was sort of an afterthought. I, I had two different Zen teachers and they both sort of encouraged me to write a book about Zen. And I thought they were both crazy because I thought this, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a book about Zen writer guy, but I did it. And, and the first book uh, became hardcore Zen 2004. And it, uh, I mean, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a, a blockbuster hit, but it was, it was bigger than anybody expected it to be. Uh, it was a long time before I could make a career out of it, you know, and I always had to have a regular job, but 
at this point, it's what I do now. So, and it's, it's funny. It is. It is. And I was just. I came. I had a, a client session this morning, and we were talking mm. about about how we uh, we don't necessarily get to choose what our life becomes about. Mm, that's for it, sure. Yeah. It it can be highly highly influenced by by events in our lives, and. Well, yeah, it sure is. I mean, that's the way I feel about it. And I, I sort of, in my own case, I, I sort of feel like I've accepted this rather than, you know, rather than you know, jumping into it full force. I, I've accepted this as this is what, maybe this is what I'm meant to do. You know, I don't know. But everything else sort of didn't work out and this <laughs> did um, to, in a fashion, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think we get to choose. I, I don't think we get to choose even who we are or how we're perceived in the world. You know, you just kind of, you just kind of kind of figure it out and, and deal with it. That's, that's been my experience. Just before we start going into any, uh, cause I definitely want for the listener to understand um, what Zazen is. And just while we're talking a little bit about how you got to that path mm-hmm. through your teens and twenties, which are the years that you, I guess, knew Marky the mm-hmm. best it was all on in front of this backdrop called punk rock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, that's, that's what we bonded on in, in, in the Wadsworth high school in those days, there weren't many people who were into punk rock, you know, it was not, it was kind of a rural Ohio sort of school. And I think all of us who were into that stuff knew each other. So we were, you know, part of this little clique of, of, punk rockers and then after high school i still kept in contact because we both had bands and and we were playing shows together and and i ended up uh, we shared a house for a while you know one of these punk rock houses where both of our bands practiced in the basement Uh, and yeah so so all of that was going on and i didn't really i didn't make a thing about my uh zen practice to to those people you know i i I, I kind of hit it. I was slightly embarrassed about it because, you know, it's not a very punk thing to do to meditate every day. Uh, and, and also I didn't want to be one of those guys who are trying to push their religion on you and saying, you should meditate, you know, cause what do I know about what people should do? But I, I, uh, so, so I'm not sure if, uh, the real Marky knew that, that I did this practice until my first book came out. I'm, I'm actually not, Mm. I don't remember it coming up in any conversation or anything before then, but it might have because he did have a band that had Zen in their name. Uh, So, uh, so I don't know if that was because he knew I was doing that stuff or, or just thought it sounded funny. I don't really know. After reading the book, I'm still not completely clear. Do you, this will get into Zen Buddhism and some of the practices. Do you view Zen Buddhism as a religion or do you view it as a lifestyle? Yeah, uh, it's, it's an interesting question. And I, people in the world of Zen uh, kind of are 
split on this one. And I usually come down on the side of it's not a religion. There are other people, including some people I, I have a great respect and admiration for who, who say it is a religion and can make a case of for it being a religion that I can't really disagree with. But that it's still, I don't think it's a religion in the way most people think of a religion. Because for one thing, it's not a belief system. I mean, there are, there, are sort of, there are certain beliefs that you might find common among a lot of Zen Buddhists, but there's no insistence uh, in, the, in the teaching and philosophy that you must believe those things. They just sort of, you know, they're just sort of things that kind of seem to be commonly held among a lot of us. Uh, and, and so, the, and there's no God in the traditional, in, in the Judeo-Christian Islamic sense of God. There's no creator figure. Uh, but I, I have another book called There Is No God and He Is Always With You, in which I kind of argue that saying, that calling Zen a form of atheism, which some people do, isn't quite correct either. Uh, it, I, I think there is a certain sense of something that's like what some people call God. <laughs> it sounds very weird. Um, there isn't a sense of, there isn't this materialistic atheism is what, I guess what I mean. And the materialistic atheism is sort of the atheism that says everything is matter and atoms interacting with each other. And there's no, there's absolutely no place for anything else in that scheme. You know, there's no spirit, there's no God, there's no nothing. Uh, Zen doesn't take that stance. At least most Zen philosophers don't take that stance. Uh, there is some sort of spiritual aspect to the, the world we live in, the universe we live in. And there's even an aspect which you could call God, but it's not God in the sense of a guy sitting on a throne. So in, in the sense of not having a God like that, in the sense of not having a belief system, that's where I say it's not a religion. But there are also aspects of it that do look like a religion. So. <laughs> And what just what are what are some of those? Is that ceremony practices mm -hmm. gathering? Yeah, yeah, all of that. So you know, if you go if you go to a standard Zen temple, they'll do usually a service which involves some chanting and offering incense, and there's a statue of a Buddha in the middle of the room, and and you know people do certain ritual things to that not not there are some zen buddhists who even reject that my my own two teachers did very little of that they did just a tiny bit i do a little bit more than either of my teachers just because of the the groups that i work with i feel like it's good for them to have a bit of uh, exposure to the ceremonies but uh, so there's that uh, there are temples, you know, and usually associate that with religions. And there are, you know, there are orders of Buddhists who wear robes and, and do those things. So that's, that's also like a religion. But in my opinion, I, I feel like it's more a sense of, you know, people finding what works in religion and incorporating that into the practice that we do, rather than, than, doing it in the same way as religions usually do. Because like the things that you chant, for example, in a, a Zen Buddhist service, you often they're, trans, they're not translated into English, but if you find the English translations or some places they do them in English and read what they're saying, they're not worshipful things. They're actually like philosophical, you know, they're almost like something that could have come from Nietzsche or somebody like that, that you chant in, in almost the way that, uh, uh, you know, a Catholic church, they would um, sing a hymn. But, but what we're singing is, you know, philosophy. 
So, and, and that's my point of reference. I was, I was raised Catholic and so came up through, you know, going to church on Sundays and that kind of uh, ritual and ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then as I went on my own, uh, I'll call it personal development journey, that's when I got reintroduced to um, the idea of other religions and mm-hmm. other movements and the value they might have instead of the one singular look. So as far as the big sort of three or four religions, let's, let's, because you are a Zen Buddhist, let's stay there. Where would you, in that world, I love this, this podcast is, is as much about my privilege to be able to sit here and talk and learn from you, but also present the conversation. Right. And so, so within the world of, of Zen Buddhism, Mm-hmm. Where would you orient the Zen Buddhism relative, say, to um, Tibetan Buddhism or um, other sects, just so yeah. that we, when we narrow down into some of what the practices are, it, it makes sense in the landscape? Right. Yeah. It's a good. It's another good question. Zen is is a is a kind of a funny thing among the other Buddhisms. And in fact, there's a book that came out a few years, I don't know, 20 years ago or something called the Shambhala Dictionary of Buddhism and Zen. And I feel like that the, the title of that book tells you a lot about how other Buddhists view Zen because the people who put that book together were not Zen Buddhists. So they call it Buddhism and Zen as if Zen is, you know, something, you know, we, we sort of, yeah, those guys are kind of like us. Uh, it's, it's in a, in a sense, it's the mystical tradition within Buddhism, although all of Buddhism has a bit of that mysticism uh, to it, but like in the Catholic tradition, there's the, the, for example, the Carmelite order of nuns is, is kind of a, a good example of the mystical tradition in contemporary Catholicism. And, and in, in, pa- in the past, Catholicism had a lot more of that, and it sort of kind of disappeared. But I often find a lot more, if I'm reading Christian mystics, uh, sometimes I feel like they sound more like Zen Buddhists than other forms of Buddhism sound like Zen Buddhists. And, and also, if I read stuff from the Kabbalah or the uh, Sufi tradition, the same thing. I feel like it, it, it feels more like one of those things. So it's sort of that... It's sort of that outlier mystical tradition, but it does have the one, the distinction in that as far as I know, and, and maybe there's an example of this that I'm missing, but as far as I know, it's the only example of a religion where the mystical tradition for a, a brief time became the popular tradition. And that would be in China about a thousand years ago, but it, it blossomed as being the the most popular form of Buddhism was this mystical Zen tradition they called Chan, and that lasted for I don't know how long, a few decades, probably not much longer than that, and then kind of went back to being, you know, the the the, the place that it had always been, <laughs> you know, the outlier place. But that was the time that Dogen uh, went to China, and he's the guy that brought that that. Uh, sort of Buddhism to Japan. And then it caught on in Japan too, as, as the popular version of Buddhism a little bit later. So, so that's interesting. Uh, but I think right now it's probably, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer, it's the one, it's the one form of Buddhism you'll hear most more people referencing, especially in, in North America uh, than any other, but it's, uh, it's, I don't think the most popular of the traditions, even, even in North America, you'll find a lot more Tibetan Buddhism and um, other, 
other things if you just count the number of people. Although when I tried to look up the statistics for that, I found out nobody's done them yet. It's just my eyeballs looking around and seeing what's there that makes me think the Zen form is still a kind of a, a minor one. And is the is the North American version of Zen Buddhism, is it um, consistent or loyal to the Japanese or Chinese, or has it been transformed or transmutated? This is a good question. <laughs> Sorry, I keep saying that's a good question. Um, but it, it is, I think it is mostly, there's, there's a whole lot I could say about that, but um, let's see if I can get uh, more basic. The reason, uh, the way Zen came to the United States was, um, well, first through D.T. Suzuki, who was an academic and writer and wrote a lot of books about it, but wasn't necessarily, I mean, he was, I don't think he was ever ordained or anything. He might have been, but he was much more of an academic than a practitioner, I believe. Uh, the other Suzuki who came over was a guy named Shunryu Suzuki, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. And, and by weird circumstances, he happened to show up in San Francisco at the time that a lot of the beatniks who lived in San Francisco were reading D.T. Suzuki's books about Zen. So these guys found out that there was a Zen temple in their own town. But that Zen temple was really mainly uh, built and um, continuing its existence to serve the Japanese community, to be kind of just a more of a gathering place for the Japanese community uh, who, who were into that sort of thing. But Shinryu Suzuki happened to be uh, sent over to be the head of this. And he was a guy who was, who was real serious about the practice. So, so his, the Japanese people that he was ministering to were mostly, they were mostly there for the ceremonies and services, but along come these non-Japanese people who were like, we want to meditate. <laughs> so, so what he introduced them to is, the the more the i would say the more pure form of of zen so it's it's the more it's the it's the form of zen that's really focused on the meditation practice and that's what what came up whereas in japan that style of zen is kind of i wouldn't say it's completely gone because i did have a teacher who taught that style but it's it's so rare you know it's really rare my teacher in my japanese zen teacher used to say that most zen priests in japan were just glorified funeral directors uh because that's that's how that's that's kind of how they operate the funeral business is how they make their money and a lot of them go into it as a kind of a family business you know dad owned the you know dad was the zen uh, the local Zen priest and his dad was the local Zen priest and then just got passed down. It's, uh, it's starting to pass down to daughters nowadays in the last uh, 40 or 50 years, that's become a, more of a thing, but, but it's, you know, it's just passed down through the family. And, uh, and most, because of that, unfortunately, most of the people who get that, the job of being a Zen priest, the local Zen priest, they're, they're, they're not that committed to it. You know, they, they just kind of, they're just kind of doing it because that's, that's what the family business is. Um, but there are still a few people who do it. So, so when I, so, so roundabout answered your question. So I think that in some ways the tradition as it is in North America and Europe and a lot of other places is authentic to the, 
to the Japanese tradition, but it's authentic to an older form of the Japanese mm -hmm. tradition. It's not really authentic to the current contemporary form of the Japanese tradition. And also just, it, it absolutely does. And just to make it, to make it make sense for someone who's, who's hearing only, or even who's eventually seeing a video of this on YouTube, you're American. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah. you're American, but you got your Zen training in Japan. Uh, I got it both you, in the U.S. You, and Japan. So, yeah. Okay. So I, I had a teacher. I had an American teacher who himself had a Japanese teacher uh, in Ohio when I was living there and was a university student and all that. Then I moved to Japan more well, really to take a teaching job because I needed a job and it wasn't really planning on doing a sort of Zen thing in Japan. But while I was over there, I met this teacher who, who initially I didn't like him, but that's a whole other story. But eventually I, I learned to, to really like and respect him. And he was the one who wanted me to ordain. So yeah, I lived in Japan for 11 years and I continued working for a Japanese company for about five years, even after I came back to the U.S., so I was over there a lot. You know, I just travel back and forth for for work all the time. So that's you know, uh, if you count that time, I, I spent a lot of time in Japan. <laughs> so my my uh, my sense of what Zen is 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 sort of uh, mixed with my sense of what I experienced in Japan too. So that that kind of it's it kind of gives me an interesting outlook on the on the whole thing you know the story of that moment where you made up your mind to like your teacher is in the book and yeah. it was stand out for me so no need to retell it now because i do want i i don't want the book to be an aside to this i it is so good i really do want people listening to to get it and and read it but it's very poignant and it's and it's and it's very I think indicative of your sense of either right and wrong or truth and not mm. truth within the, the Buddhist, you know, system and, uh, and, and uh, was, was enlightening in its own way. Um, when, so let's talk about meditation and the role okay. of meditation within Zen and, you know, relative to other types of Buddhism. And we'll just bring the conversation over to sort of North American meditation trends mm -hmm. and, um, but you used the word zazen earlier, so can you explain to us what that is and 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 how it might differ from some how people how people are either med trying to meditate, being taught to meditate, or you know I'll just hand it right over to you. Yeah, uh, uh, it's I spend my life explaining zazen to people, but every time I get asked to do it again, I'm like, oh, how can I do this? So <laughs> let me try it. Uh, it's it's. I used to not like to use the word meditation when I'd refer to zazen, but I found out that I was confusing people when I didn't. So now I'll call it a type of meditation. But I feel like in a superficial sense, it certainly looks like pretty much every other form of meditation is that you're sitting very still, you're, you're sitting upright on a cushion and, and your back is not supported and you're trying to keep straight and you're trying to stay still. Uh, your eyes are open, which makes it different from other forms of meditation in, in one, one of the superficial ways, but mostly it looks like meditation. I think the difference between Zazen and the forms of meditation that I'm most familiar with is that there's no goal to it. There's no, you're not trying to become mindful. You're not trying to become enlightened. You're not trying to become a better person. You know, whatever, whatever goal you have in mind for your Zen practice, 
uh, is is you're you're usually told to just forget about that. <laughs> you know, just sit for the sake of sitting itself. Don't don't even try to make your mind blank. But you do you do sort of try to uh, allow thoughts to to pass away naturally. So so if a thought comes up you're trying not to hold on to it or to, you know, have this little conversations with yourself like we all do. So you're trying to avoid yeah. that. The one but that goes, the conversation that goes, oh, this is bullshit. Yeah, bullshit. yeah. <laughs> bullshit, <laughs> bullshit, bullshit. Well, you can have I suck that at this. This is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of people have that conversation and a lot of people give up on it. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. if you Whether you feel like it's it's going well or not, the instruction is usually don't don't even judge it. And if you find yourself judging it, don't judge yourself for judging it. Just, you know, just keep, just keep, just stay still, you know, and, and keep up with it. And when you first start a practice like that, it's really difficult because you always, I'm just talking about myself here. I always wanted to put some kind of goal in there because I, I thought oh, I'm just lost. I don't know what the, what I'm doing. And the, the point of it is, is to have that experience of not judging at all, you know, of, of just, of just being lost. You know, you're just like, I don't know what, I don't know whether this is good or bad. That's the point. <laughs> you know, you, you, you don't even have to know whether it's good meditation or bad meditation. You just do it. So, so that's the biggest difference. And, and we usually generally sit for, you know, the, the standard period is, is between 20 and 40 minutes. Uh, people can, my, my first teacher had this nice saying, which is, he said, you should do Zazen every day, even if it's for five lousy minutes, <laughs> which I like. Uh, so, so you can do it shorter, you can do it long, but you know, you just, you just, um, you're sitting there and it would, I think it would probably seem to any rational person that that would be a pointless activity and in a way it is a pointless activity that's the point of the activity is to be pointless ironically enough but in that pointless activity you kind of gradually start to come to the source of all activity because you 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 you, you start to realize that everything is pointless you know everything everything i do and not and not in a nasty sort of negative way but in the way that that I'm just doing this right now. And, and whatever results come out of doing this right now, that's something else. And that, and that may or may not happen, but, but I'm just doing this right now. And, and to me, the best analog in sort of things normal people do is as exercise. You know, if you were obsessing during your exercise about how many inches you're going to put on your forearms or how much weight you're going to lose or whatever people obsess about, you might never get the exercising done, you know, or you get too, too depressed to do it because it's not happening fast enough or whatever. So it's, that's the same sort of approach we take. We, we're just not worried about it. Um, and ironically, good things do happen if you meditate, uh, if you do zazen. And, uh, but the tradition in the Zen stream is not, to, is not to focus on that too much. It's to just kind of say, just sit. <laughs> So at the risk of putting a point on it, yeah. is, is it about not being attached to it? In a way, yeah. That I just, I think I put it, in, I know I put it in one of my books and I think it's in the, the Letters to a Dead Friend. But I learned recently, and you'd think I would have learned this a long time ago, that the Sanskrit word that's usually translated as attachment actually has a secondary meaning or, or, or a, uh, not even secondary, it has a double meaning, and the other meaning of it is fuel. And certain scholars have put forward the idea that 
we probably should not have translated as an attachment all those years ago. We probably should have been translated as fuel all along. And so what that means is when you're meditating, you're not adding fuel to the to whatever processes are going on in your brain. So if you're if you're having a you know experience like I hate this, you don't add more fuel to it. Or if you're having the experience of I love this, I'm doing this so well, you don't add more fuel to that either. So you just try to avoid uh, adding anything to what's already going on in in the practice. That's really cool. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, so. Why eyes open? Ah, a lot of people ask that. Yeah, uh, I'm like I, you're a Westerner. I, I yeah. came to meditation through the self-help world, which uh-huh. I want to talk to you about later in the conversation. But in my frame of reference, it's always been eyes closed. And since starting the book, I've, I've I thought, well, I'll open my eyes. <laughs> Radically yeah. different experience. It is. And uh, the, the, the thing for me is, since Zazen was the first sort of meditation I ever did, I haven't really meditated with eyes closed, but my my teacher, the first teacher, the American guy who who first taught me, he used to explain it by saying that we keep our eyes open as a way of acknowledging the outside world. Like the outside world is still part of our practice, and we're not trying to get into you know close our eyes and get into an inner sort of headspace or an inner space. We're trying to find that balance so that so that the out side world is involved in our practice but we we turn and face a wall <laughs> so so you're not you're looking at at something boring you know it, i used to like to say it's literally watching paint dry <laughs> you know you're just you're just sitting there watching you know this wall and most people who do zazen we we tend to kind of you know, half close our eyes. But my, my teacher in Japan didn't even like that. He said, your eyes should be completely open. <laughs> but uh, I I tend to let my eyelids droop a little. I can f- hear the herds of people running to go and sit to watch the paint dry right now, Brad. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough sell. <laughs> um, um, but you, uh, you also share that your teacher said that uh, I'm paraphrasing and I don't have it right in front of me in my notes, but about anytime you're wandering, check your posture. Yeah. 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 That was, that was his main criteria for practice. And he would say, if you're, if your mind is wandering, check your posture. And I, when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's goofy advice because I'd had another teacher and, and I don't think he would have disagreed with that, but that isn't the way he, he said it. Um, so when I heard this check your posture thing, I thought, well, you know. but when I started doing that, and this is, you know, when I first got to Japan in the early nineties, I started practicing with him. I, uh, I've never found a time where I was, my mind was wandering during Zazen and my posture was still good. There was the, the, the body tends to follow the mind, you know? So if you're, if you're thinking a lot, your shoulders are, are going up, you know, and if you're getting a little lazy, sometimes you're just, you know, you're losing your balance that way, but there's always something that's going on where the, the mind is starting to carry the body in a certain direction. So it, I found it's really useful. So if your mind is wandering, look at what your posture is doing. And that won't necessarily, it, it doesn't just blow all the thoughts out of your mind when you check your posture, but it does change a lot of it. Usually I find out the, the thoughts I'm having immediately before adjusting my posture, those go away. 
you know, another group of them might <laughs> emerge right after. But the ones I'm the ones I'm obsessing about when I fix my posture, they they kind of scatter for the you know, shelter or wherever they go. You, uh, I run into this. I I meditate. I recommend to people who I meet to meditate in some kind of strange way. I've become a huge advocate of meditation. Um, and in the book, there's a quote. Uh, this isn't you. I'll clarify. This is from, I think it's a book, Zig Zag Zen. Because I want oh. to address the, busy, <laughs> yeah. the so-called busy Western mind because I thought that was yeah. very poignant. So I'm going to read it to you. And it says, because uh, I hear a lot of that. So I'm, I'm leveraging you right now. Okay. <laughs> so, um, it, it's clear that many of us Westerners have such hypersensitive minds and complex psychological dynamics that is very difficult to quiet and discipline our minds enough to make any real progress along the meditative path. Yeah, yeah, I didn't say that. It's, um, <clears throat> it came from that book, Zig Zag Zen. And, and I thought it was a great example of how, how people will tell themselves that, that they are specially, you know, not good at meditating. And the thing is, if it was, if it was an easy thing to do to meditate, they wouldn't build big statues to people who meditated, you know, it's not, it's understood that this is not an easy thing to do. And it's never been an easy thing to do. And there's a certain sort of, I hate to even go there, but there's a certain sort of subtle racism to that, uh, oh, go to there. that comment, <laughs> because, because he's sort of, he's sort of, saying that his Western mind is all complex and dynamic, you know, but those, those Asians over there, they must, you know, <laughs> they must have these simple minds that are not like that. And that's, I, I've, I lived in Japan for long enough to know that's not true. You know, everybody's got complex minds that are going all over the place. So, so that's just the human condition wherever you go. Uh, and, and it's just, it's just hard, you know, when you, especially when you first start and that idea of progress, that this is one of the things I think is sort of genius about the Zen tradition is that they say, forget about progress. <laughs> you know, even if you feel like you're doing the most garbage Zen in, that's ever been done, that's still Zazen. You know, that's still perfectly valid Zazen. Even if you're, even if your mind is bubbling over with ideas and, you know, that thing that guy said to you two years ago or whatever, you know, whatever it you know, happens to be. Um, it's, it's fine. That's, that's just, that's just how it goes sometimes. And other times it, it, it goes better. And I've been doing it for 35 years or so now, and it still goes like that. You know, some days are really good and some days just aren't. And, and, uh, but I do it anyway, you know, so, and, and I have, after doing it for this long, I have more good days than bad days. Whereas, you know, in the old times, I have more bad days than good days. But I still, I still get times where it's just like, you know, it's still just like Wah! when I'm sitting there on the cushion instead of being anything, you know, beautiful and meditative the way you imagine or you know, people imagine. I'm in full-on empathy, but not in the realm of meditation. I'm thinking about when I when I run. Oh, I used yeah. to run long distance and I'm a crap runner. I am like the slowest <laughs> of the slow of the slow. And yet somehow, you know, completed half a dozen half marathons. And even oh, my cool. worst run was better than the run that I didn't take. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. The, the, my, it's kind of funny you mentioned running because that's, that's the thing that got my, the, my teacher in Japan 
Uh, he was a, in the track team when he was in high school, and he used to like to tell the story uh, that one of the reasons he got into Zen is because he 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 did it. I, I don't know what possessed him to to take his first session or whatever he went on in the first place, but when he did it, he felt like there was something in the practice that he'd only felt before when running, you know, this kind of, this kind of way that, that sometimes the mind just kind of clears out and, and you're just into the pure experience of it. And he, and he said that, that the Zen practice was the, 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 you know, he, he always related it to that. And he was always really excited when anybody from an athletic background would show up. Uh, at, at class. It used to kind of annoy me <laughs> sometimes how excited he'd get. But there was one time we did a session and a tennis pro, uh, I don't even remember where he's from, but um, he's probably somebody that you'd know if uh, if you're into tennis, but I can't remember the guy's name. Anyway, he showed up at this retreat and uh, Nishijima Roshi was so excited to have the, the tennis pro there because it was somebody he could talk to about the, the connection between that athletic stuff and the Zen practice. Like the training and trust your training. Yeah. Right. Like when it comes down to that day when you're going out there to to take the the measured run, it's like you gotta trust your training. Yeah, yeah. I, can, I bet there's a bridge there too. It's I think so. if I was more athletic, I could probably make a better case for it. In in my own case though, being a I don't know if you call a bass player for a punk rock band a musician, but being some sort of musician, that's something I also noticed. There, there's something in the Zen practice that I'd only experienced before uh, when when playing music, specifically playing music on a stage with a group. Um, it very rarely seems to happen, at least for me, in private rehearsals. But if I'm up there with a group and we're we're all focused on getting that, you know, getting the music right. Uh, it, thinking has to go, you know, if you, if you think too much, you, you just lose your place and, and you don't know what you're playing anymore. So you have to kind of just get into the purity of, of the experience if you want it to happen. And when it happens well, when everybody locks in together, there's this sort of magic that happens that, that's, uh, I think, I, I heard Frank Zappa talk about it one time. And of course, his music is way more complex than, than anything I ever played. But, but he talked about that as being, you know, something really special. And I said, yeah, that, you know, even playing simple music like punk rock, it can happen uh, too. Because punk rock, even though it's simple, it has to be played pretty precisely for it to work, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the, the thing about that. I'm going to make sure that my son listens to this <laughs> interview. He's a, he's a guitarist and uh, and I can only I don't even know how to quantify the level of alternative rock he plays. But there's but so many forms these days. And it's harsh. It's it's yeah. and uh and I apologize Cameron if I just called it harsh, but <laughs> but it's it is it's it's very, very um, fast, and he's amazing. And watching him play, it's just that is something that I could never access with my mind and hands. Like it yeah, is another yeah. state. It is, it is something. I mean, you'd probably call Zero Defects the band I'm in harsh too, because uh, we're probably more or, old school than than your son's band. But but that was the sort of idea was to play as fast as possible, you know, and just kind of. Eh you know, mow the audience down with the, with this, you know, <laughs> this sound. Yeah, the, the wall of sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, so we've talked a lot about meditation and I know that, that, that is the, I guess the defining characteristic of Zen Buddhism, but it, it sits 
in the larger um, set of practices called Buddhism. I'd love to talk a little bit about the four, the four noble truths or um, the eightfold path, just to yeah. just bring them in here. Because one of the things that you made me think about in, and I don't know if I'll remember the letter, I'll scroll through here, but, but it's, you know, things tend to become popular and mm-hmm. then they get extracted from the very environment that made them what they are. And so you've got meditation slash mindfulness yeah. overrunning everything. I don't, I, or, yeah. or highly popularized. Mm-hmm. And we all come to it in our own way. Like I shared earlier, I never heard of meditating really other than this strange thing that Catholics didn't do um, <laughs> until I was going to personal development workshops. So that was my context. Yeah. So I was in the, I think the mostly extracted context. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's the, what's your opinion on that? What are your, your thoughts on that? And should we be looking at it in isolation or should we be exploring more or could we be exploring more? I, I, yeah, my, I have kind of strong opinions on it, which I've expressed a few times in, in public before, but uh, I, I don't, I don't hate the mindfulness movement. I, I think it's, it's probably better that it, that it's there than, than when it wasn't there. I think, I think it's mostly a good thing. But the problem is, if the, you mentioned the Eightfold Path, and, and I can never remember all eight folds of the path, but in one of the Buddha's first talks that he ever gave publicly, uh, he mentions this thing called the Noble Eightfold Path, and, and I can't remember which number it is, but mindfulness is one of those. So there's, there's man, mm-hmm. I can't remember all of them. <laughs> right, right, so... I'm- Hmm. I want to laugh because I went to write them down. I wrote down uh-huh. seven of them. So if I feed you seven, you <laughs> might get number eight. I <laughs> know <laughs> yeah, it's right action. Let's try. Okay, go ahead. Right view, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. God, what is the missing one? I don't know. <laughs> okay, you talk. I'm going to look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. But but that, you know, when you extract mindfulness from that, you you get something Okay, one of the big issues in that you'll hear Zen Buddhists talk about all the time is ethics and how important ethics are to the Buddhist path and how important it is to lead an ethical life. And that's kind of drummed into you. You do these, you do a ceremony called uh, Jukai in which you uh, agree to abide by the 10 Buddhist precepts, which are, which are kind of similar in some ways to the 10 commandments. You know, a lot of them are the same, you know, don't kill, don't steal uh, are, are in there. Don't be covetous is in there. So, so a lot of them are, are quite uh, similar. And, but it's the, the bottom line is it's all about being ethical. And I think a lot of that gets lost. And, and also, uh, the, one of the reasons that the Zen stream developed in the way it did with, this, with those rituals and things that we talked about earlier is because I, and this is my reading of it, but my, my understanding of, of the development of this practice is that the Buddha had a particular he he did this sort of meditation where he just kind of threw out everything. You know, he'd, he'd learned to meditate from several other teachers, but he kind of threw out everything that he'd learned and just tried to kind of get into the pure experience of meditation for its own sake. And then he had some great revelation, which is, you know, always written about in very flowery terms. And maybe it wasn't quite as, you know, as... Uh, flowery as, as we hear about it. But he did have some kind of uh, turning point. And 
then he he decided to try to teach that to others. And as as he went along teaching it to various kinds of people in various places all around the northern part of India, he found different problems came up. And each time a problem would come up, he'd he'd try to find a way to adjust the system so that it fit the problem. And and that same process has been going on for uh, you know two thousand years now, which means that. It's got. There's a lot of sort of research and development uh, going into this 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 thing. What happens when you try to take the mindfulness out of that is you end up throwing away all that research and development. And I and I think I understand the reason a lot of people do that is because they want to present something secular. And in in Western society, we really have this strong value about things being secular because you know our our own history is is filled with bad things happening when people got too religious, you know, the Crusades and all this stuff, witch burnings and things like that. And I and I think that cultural history has made us very sensitive, or made a lot of us very sensitive to just trying to find something that's purely secular. And so in, in, in an effort to make a purely secularized version of Buddhism, which only has mindfulness, they throw out all the things that, that look religious, uh, but, but then, then you've thrown out all this support that's been you know, discovered through the centuries that, that makes the meditation kind of work, that makes a foundation for it. You know, you if you went to a mindfulness course and somebody asked you to take a public vow to uphold a ethic, an ethical system, you know, people would be like, "What?" You know, they'd back mm-hmm. off and 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 run away. But I think there's a good reason uh, to do that, especially if you're a meditator, because meditation has certain pitfalls that other practices don't. And and one of them is one of them is is you have to do it for years before this happens, but you start to learn your own psychology very well. And you start to understand that your own psychology is really, there's very little difference between, you know, your psychology and somebody else's, which means that if you want to, you can become a master manipulator of people. And, and I think that there's been some scandals that have happened in the world of, of uh, Buddhism in the West. And when I look at some of those, I think, Oh, that's a guy who discovered the master manipulation aspect and kind of went a little crazy with it and and ended up harming a lot of people you know uh, it's, it's you know, it often becomes a, like a sexual thing you know and and so so that's a you know people who discover they have this ability to manipulate people become very you know it's like it's it's better than what was that book that was out that was telling you how to how to um get sex really easy that it was a really popular book a few years ago uh, the game i think it was called okay yeah you know, it's better than that um and and so that's why you need the ethical stuff you know so that's that's one of the reasons you're always drummed into into your mind that you need to be ethical uh, because you you can find a certain power from this practice that uh, that can be misused um, and yeah <laughs> i mean it's not for most people that's not a big danger but it it's uh, it's enough of a problem that um that we have this ethical system. And besides that, the ethical system also comes out of a philosophical understanding that there's really isn't a separation between people. I mean, 
oneness when you're first presented with it sounds like, oh, that's a nice idea up there in the sky, oneness. But after you work with it for a while, you find that oneness is going on everywhere in every situation. You know, every time you're with somebody, you're, you're leaking into them and they're leaking into you. And, and to do harm to somebody else is essentially equivalent to doing harm to yourself. And so if you're intelligent, you won't do that. But not a lot of us are that intelligent. So, so we do it all the time. If, some, if somebody is, is listening to this and they're, they're, they're meditating and it's been prescribed to them, even as a mm-hmm. practice, say, from you know, a Western practitioner. Yeah. I mean, Western practitioners are having people do mindfulness sure, yeah. exercises. Um, are you saying that it's less potentially powerful without these principles or, or are you saying that it's, you know, all lonely out there with <laughs> without the things it was made with? Maybe more like the second it's, it's, um, well, often in this, this comes from reading a little bit about what's, going on out there in the world. But often there, often there are these people who are recommending mindfulness in the context of a psychiatric uh, uh, relationship or whatever, uh, who themselves don't really know that much about meditation. So in the Zen stream, you don't get to be a teacher of Zen. It usually takes years of practice before a teacher will say to somebody, okay, now you have my permission to go out there and teach on your own. And part of that is, you know, I can't, I can't say that either of my teachers ever specifically made note of this, but I think part of the process that any teacher is going to look for is whether you've had some of the darker experiences around meditation, you know, and, and if you've had the darker experiences around meditation and gotten through them and come out the other side, okay, then you might be ready to teach it. So what happens often is the, the psychiatrists and professionals in those areas will look upon meditation as, as, uh, as just something that, they, that makes you feel good. You know, it, it, it calms you down, it, it, you know, lowers your heart rate and lowers your, I don't know, adrenaline, you know, whatever. There's all sorts of research around, I don't really know, but it, it does do those things initially. But for a lot of people, I think for anybody who meditates seriously for long enough, they're going to encounter their own darkness. You know, we all have it. And when it comes up, it can often, if you're not ready for it, nobody's ever completely ready for it, it can, it can be a shock. And I'm just speaking for my own uh, self now. But when it, when it came up for me and some of the things that I, you know, like, like when you're quieting your mind and, and not putting a lot of new thoughts into it, what tends to happen is a lot of old repressed stuff will, will start to reemerge you know things you hadn't thought about in years or decades things maybe you'd never thought about but that happened to you those things will start to appear and and you'll find things about yourself that you don't like i mean that's that's my own experience like i i i found i found that there was elements within my personality that i had previously believed only 
only occurred in the personalities of the worst people in the world. <laughs> you know, who, whoever mm-hmm. you have in mind as the worst person in the world, you know, whether it's Hitler or whoever, you know, um, it, you think that they're uniquely bad and that's what happened there is that was just a uniquely bad person. And then you, you practice for yourself and then find out, oh my God, that's in me. Uh, and that can be a shocker. And if your teacher hasn't had that experience, your teacher isn't going to know what to do with it, usually. You know, and that, that's what's happening. A lot of the complaints that are coming along with the current mindfulness movement have to do with people who say, well, I got into mindfulness-based stress reduction to reduce my stress, and then I found out I was 10 times more stressed. You know, that, that happens to a, a fair amount of people. And if the teachers who are dealing with it don't know about that, then they're not going to know how to deal with it. I don't, I've gone through it. And sometimes when somebody presents it to me, like it's happening, you know, I I do these one-on-ones with students all the time. And sometimes somebody will come in with something and every person has a different specific version of it. That's kind of characteristic of them, but it's all kind of the same thing really when you get down to it, but they'll present me their personal specific version of it. And I'm going, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but I have to be, you know, that's what I'm doing inside. But, you know, I'm trying to go, oh, yes, well, you know, but, but, you know, I have to talk them through it and say, well, yeah, that's, you know, you're just experiencing something that, that we all have, but most of us repress so thoroughly that we, it's not just that we think we don't have it, we think we're co- completely incapable of having thoughts like that. And then you have a thought like that, that you thought you were incapable of having. And you go, oh, my God, you know, and uh, I know I know what happened to me. And I had to go and have these meetings with my teachers and go, oh, my God, I'm thinking about it. And they go, well, (laughs) (laughs) yes. okay, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And even just having that, I would imagine that in that in that moment, just having somebody receive it as you're not a bad person, you're not evil for having these thoughts. You're not unique in your darkness, just like you're not unique in your your lightness. Yeah, it's really good, and and that's uh, you know I, I I think about the specific things my teachers said to me in those moments, and and probably if you'd recorded them and played them back, they would sound like nothing. You know, they would be like, mm-hmm. whoa, whoa, but but when you actually have somebody go, that's okay, <laughs> you know, just don't respond to that thought and don't give it any more fuel than, than you've already given it and, uh, and let it go. And, and eventually it'll go away. And that, that was also hard for me to believe because I'd been told that. And then I'm going, well, it's not going away. It's been three weeks. (laughs) You know, I'm going, it takes longer than three weeks, (laughs) but eventually if you stop feeding into it, it just, it just goes. And then you, you're like, ah, I don't have that anymore. Uh, And that's really beautiful. But that takes, you know, that takes some, some work to get to. Mm. It almost, I hate using this word, but I'm going to anyways. It almost sounds like, you know, that seeing your, your ego, you know, seeing mm-hmm. that, that narcissistic side or, or that all the, the less attractive or we want to think less authentic, mm-hmm. um, versions of ourselves 
Yeah, that's all in there. And 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 you're you're doing a good job if you're if you're keeping that stuff in check, you know? And and that's great. So so but the fact that it's in there in and of itself is really not that big of a deal. But that's one of the reasons we we want to candle the meditation stuff carefully because I I you know, some of the other worse scandals that have happened where you know, something terrible happens in a meditation group. Um, you know, I'm thinking of like Om Shinriko in Japan. I was actually in Japan when that happened. I don't know if you, you know, uh, you or your listeners might not know about that because I don't know if it was as big of a deal, but this guy named Shoko Asahara put uh, poison gas on the Tokyo subway systems in an attempt to, to start, you know, an apocalypse and several people were killed and like hundreds were, were severely injured in that. And I was in Tokyo that day riding the trains, but the trains I was riding on were a different line. So I was lucky, but, um, but he was a meditation coach, you know, and guru and, or, or something that he presented himself as. And a lot of people had come to him because they wanted to find, you know, this way to meditate, but he himself had rejected uh, having a teacher. You know, so, Mm -hmm. so when those sort of psychotic things happened, I don't think he ever had anybody to tell him that, that you don't go there. Yeah. 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 Not all thoughts need to turn into action. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially the one that says kill a bunch of people on the Tokyo subway system. (laughs) Um, You kind of don't want to put that one in action. (laughs) No. So I'm, I want to, I'm torn in two different directions here. I think I'll stay on this thread. Then I'm going to come back around to, to the, um, the mindfulness and self-help, but carrying along with this, taking mindfulness and meditation out of Buddhist tradition. And then there's a chapter later on in the book that I've, I found very interesting and it was, uh, it's called our drugs, the gateway to Zen. Mm -hmm. And I had an experience, um, with somebody who I've never done ayahuasca. I've done a lot of things. In fact, Mm -hmm. this person um, called me when she was considering going to do ayahuasca because Mm -hmm. um, publicly um, I've been outed as having been a part of some pretty hardcore, um, you know, spiritual uh, events. And so she was asking me, had, had I done ayahuasca, would I do ayahuasca? And, and then she went and had her ayahuasca experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then what happened afterwards was, um, was not very, not cool. Um, so talk, share with us your perspective on that, because it, it brought, this is another thing that's been popularized. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really concerned about it because this, it's sort of, it's been a resurgence, you know, one of the things that what I loved about the punk scene that I was part of was there's the straight edge movement where you just didn't do drugs or, or drink or anything. And then to see this sort of come back is, is kind of upsetting. I, I did, uh, I, I took acid before I was uh, into Zen as, and, and I took it because I'd read Be Here Now and I wanted to have a spiritual experience with, you know, on LSD and didn't really have one. But it's, I think the problem with those things isn't so much that it's an inauthentic spiritual experience because in some ways it might be, but it, it using those kind of drugs and things will push you into something usually 
way sooner than you're ready for it. So you might have an authentic spiritual experience, but if you're not ready for that experience, then then there's nothing you can do with it. It just becomes it just becomes more fuel for the ego, and it, it can actually be damaging. So. Uh, one of the things I love about Zen is that it's so boring, but you have to go through this, you know, years of boredom before you have any, any experiences. And, and in fact, in the Soto tradition that I come from, it's considered a little bit uh, bad. <laughs> I can't think of the right word. It's considered like not, not very useful to talk about some of the more, you know, special experiences that one can have around Zen practice, but they do happen. But they usually happen after years and years of of struggle and boredom and dark times and and stuff that you you know that's not so so uh, fun. But um, but they happen and they they can penetrate very deeply. And you know that's that's the trouble I see. And 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 the whole ayahuasca thing, you know, it's often presented as you know this is the ancient shamanic tradition, and I'm going. Well, yeah, it is in in South America for people who lived in a jungle all their lives and and have been steeped in the the philosophy and 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 traditions that surround the experience of ayahuasca. That's that's an essential part of of what makes it work. And if you if you didn't grow up in that community in that environment, and then you take that substance, I don't think it's even possible to have the the same sort of experience. But you'll have some kind of experience, and that experience can be, like I say, it can be really damaging. I mean, sometimes it can be really beautiful, but it's sort of like you know, <laughs> imagine you putting the coin in and rolling the slot machine. You don't know you don't know what you're going to get when you it in your mouth. I mean, that's what my, my fourth LSD trip was so bad that I don't even like to think about it. And that's when I gave up the whole thing. But the first three had been, had been lovely, you know, and I expected it to be lovely again. And then it was the most horrible night of my life, you know? And I'm going to, you, you compare it in, uh, in the same chapter to the difference between the mountain climber versus the helicopter guy. Right. Like the, yeah. the helicopter guy flies up to the top of the mountain, takes a look around and then fly, sees what he, in this case, or he or she yeah. um, needs to see and, and experience the glory of it. And then they fly back down. But the mountain climber makes the climb. The mountain climber has done it, yeah, has made the climb. And that makes a huge difference in the experience. And, and it's not just that the, the, the mountain climber isn't just after the view from the summit of the mountain. You know, that's, that's something that, that a lot of people don't understand when they make these comparisons. Uh, yeah, like incremental. Yeah, yeah. Each, each increment is part of the whole experience. And that's how, that's how we deal with it in the Zen practice. Each, each you know, moment is still part of that overall experience. So it's not just the, the spectacular moment of, you know, unsurpassed, perfect enlightenment as they as they say in the literature it's it's everything else leading up to that and everything else that comes after i'll share with the listeners who know a little who've been with me for a while we timed out earlier in the conversation because i was like brad you've just kind of served up to me <laughs> a talk about you know my experience in my spiritual journey where as a matter of speaking a similar shortcut was taken yeah 
and and it was the the Sedona sweat lodge. Yeah, and. Uh, must have been no... something. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, we we would need a few episodes yeah. time to 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 talk about, you know, to to even try to explain it, but mm-hmm. but you go in just I often refer to it as, and this is as neutral, talk about neutralizing something, but like peak of expectations, pit of experience, mm-hmm. right? Like rebirth and transformation, celebration is the expectation, and you know tragic loss of three lives plus 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 and there's we're in that territory because this was this was a native tradition taken out of the context of the native um way Mm -hmm. and at the time the last thing on my mind was cultural appropriation or shortcut because how really i it just never would have occurred to me yeah. It occurs to me now <laughs> about how potentially, you know, dangerous um, these kind of things can be, even if no one comes yeah. to physical harm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something, uh, I, something I, sometimes I feel like I spend too much time talking about it, but I, I feel like a lot of the people promoting meditation don't spend any time talking about it. So, you know, maybe that, maybe that makes me go overboard a little bit, but there are, there are some potential dangers. Now, if you, if you handle it right, and if you have a good teacher, uh, you'll get through that, you know, and it, it doesn't really become such a, a big deal, but it's, it is important. This, this is why we have Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That's the three, the three, uh, what are the three treasures is what they're called. So, Sangha is the group, you know, and, and I always sort of hated that one because I'm not a real people person uh, and I don't like hanging out with people and, th- and things like that. But it's, it's important to have that, that sort of community around it because you, then you have people, you know, you can have a teacher who's at a certain level of, of doing it, but then it's also nice to have some other people who are at various points in their meditative career and to just kind of be around you know it doesn't even mean you have to always talk about your meditation experiences with everybody but you, you just have that that you know that there's people around you who've, who've kind of got a a little bit of a handle on what's going on and um yeah it's uh it's too bad i i'm 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 not a fan of that term cultural appropriation but there's a real thing around that but it is applicable in this case you know where you just take the thing out of the culture and try to put it into another cultural context where it, it doesn't really have the, the support system that it had in the other in the other place that it comes from. And and it's a bit like playing with fire. And I think a lot of us don't realize how heavy some of these things we are, you know, we're we're dealing with are. Especially when it's promoted as as, you know, it's stress reduction, you know, and you go, okay, it's gonna be stress reduction, you know. And and for a lot of people it's not stress reduction. You know, and 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 uh, and you got to kind of, you know, feel your way through that as well. You have a chapter in there called "Crazy Wisdom is Usually More Crazy Than Wise." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, there. There was a guy who was kind of famous, Chogyam Trungpa. I don't think he coined the term for crazy wisdom, but he he kind of became very heavily associated with it. And he was active in, in he was Tibetan, but he was active in the US for, for years. And 
I think he did a lot of good for a lot of people, but there were a lot of people who who had a very different experience with him. And crazy wisdom is this idea that that wisdom doesn't always look the way you expect it to. So so Trungpa, I think it's not telling any secrets that he was a heavy drinker, and he also had some sexual things that he liked to do that were a bit unusual. <laughs> um, and he never hid any of that. You know, he, all of his followers knew that that's the kind of person he was. And, and, and so he was trying to kind of ride that, that wave and, and trying to, to be a, a good teacher and still not give up those aspects of, of him, you know, his, his personality. Um, but a lot of times that gets translated wrongly into this idea that we can just do whatever we want. And even for Trungpa, he was, he died when he was 48 years old. Uh, so I don't think it was that good for him. And I don't think he maybe had quite a, 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 as much of a grip on it as he may have thought he did, uh, or, or that wouldn't have happened. But, um, yeah. So, so I, I am a bit, uh, you know, that, that stuff seems very exciting. And probably the reason that I put that into the, this particular book is because I'm, I'm addressing it to, a, to the specific person, to Marky, who, who, I, who I talk about. You know, and he was in his black leather jacket and goth and, and in a punk rock band and, and he was a drinker. And, and so I, I kind of feel like that, people like that are kind of, are often attracted to that. Like, oh, look, you can, you know, this is a, you know, a different way to do it. Uh, but it can easily become kind of an excuse just to be, you know, kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you were in the, in that same vein, you were saying that these kind of situations are why we need to, to know what the, the principles are so that we can yeah. discern what's um, crazy wisdom or, or what's not wisdom. Maybe I won't, I won't, put a label on the crazy wisdom because crazy yeah. wisdom could also be stuff that isn't logical yeah. or, you know, yeah. nonlinear or woo. If we go up to, you know, the, you have some, you refer to woo woo in your, in your yeah. writing. Um, and, uh, and so at the core of it, there seems to be like, you know, we're, we're human. Just don't give your, don't follow blindly. Yeah, that's that's kind of it, you know, and you just have to be careful. And you're right, crazy is kind of a funny word and and it's a little bit of a dirty word for for some people. And there are there are aspects even in Dogen who's a very sober sort of teacher that sound pretty wild uh, when you when you get into some of his philosophical ideas. Um and and some of the koan stories, we didn't even <laughs> touch on those, but those are the stories in Zen that just sound weird, you know, for most people and end up with a guy twisting another guy's nose or something, you know, as a way of teaching. So, you know, it, it, so there's, there's all sides to it. And it's just, it's just kind of an admonition to, to tread carefully in that area. So where do you see, um, like coming back to the book, where do you see this going for you? You've got, you've got the book out, you're doing retreats. I was on your YouTube channel last night, uh, taking a look around, and mm -hmm. and uh, and I also couldn't help but notice that you have a podcast. 
Yeah, so yeah. Can you I just tell started us? the podcast. Uh, well, the podcast is something I just started doing because I realized the concept of letters to a dead friend about Zen was potentially infinite. You know, there's no reason I have to stop with the letters that I wrote in the book. So I, I've continued writing them, you know, as much for myself as for the audience. And I'm continuing to share them with, with audiences who want to hear them. And then we have a little discussion about it. So that's what the podcast is. I've put two episodes up so far. I have four more in the can, and I'm going to be recording another one in a couple of weeks. So, uh, so that that I'm really excited about and, and trying to continue with. And you know, I'm I'm still uh, traveling around doing the retreats and everything. And and I've just written. I don't want to talk too much about it, but I've just written a first draft of a proposal for another book that's going to be a completely other direction from, from this one. So, uh, so I'm just, I, I think this is an interesting path to be on and, and it's, it, uh, I'm glad that I came across it. You know, so there, there, there are occasions when I sort of curse my teachers for, for sticking me with this thing, you know, because, uh, because I'm kind of stuck as a meditator and a Zen person for the rest of my life and I can't get out of it. But on the other hand, it's, it's a good place to be. And I think it's a way to, to get into some things about life that, that I couldn't have gotten into uh, any other way. Uh, at least I couldn't have, you know, personally. And uh, so I'm just going to keep writing books and, and doing stuff. Well, and I think it also gives you a perspective, a vantage point and a voice that well, well, your voice is yours, no matter no matter what. But your your vantage point is is to me, it's unique, yeah. which is saying something because I've been steeped in this stuff for over ten years now, mm. and uh, and I think there's a lot of things in the book, but also listening to you in the brief bits of YouTube um, that I was taking a look into, I was like, here's a smart guy <laughs> who is not afraid to speak his mind. Well, thanks. I, you know, I just, I try, I, I, I think I'm on kind of the outs with most of the uh, North American Buddhist community <laughs> because, because I kind of don't go along with everything that they want to go along with. But, um, but I, it's, I, I gotta try to, to, to do this honestly. And I, I never, I never do anything with the intention of being, you know, harming anybody or, or upsetting anybody, but, um, you know, it, it, it sometimes works out that way. And then I always feel a little bad. <laughs> I upset them. Um, but, um, but I think it's, it's important to kind of get it all out there. And, and I'm just trying to keep doing that. And then let, let people make up their own minds, but they yeah. can't make up their own mind if they aren't given everything to look at. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I, I think if people kind of look at what I do and reject it, well, that's good. At least they looked and, and, Maybe they know why they rejected it. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's wonderful. Well, listen, I know you've got to go. I feel like we could do a whole other one back to back. So thank you for coming in and being willing to, to explore different areas. And, uh, and I will give um, links to your site and to the books on, in the show notes. But just for anyone who is listening right now and can't click on anything, mm. where's the best place for people to find you online? Yeah, the, my, my blog is hardcorezen.info and because we couldn't get .com or .net, so it's hardcorezen.info because hardcorezen was the name of my first book. 
And if you go to hardcorezen.info, there is uh, links to, well, there's a blog there. It's right there. And there's links to how to buy the book and, and to uh, all the other things I'm doing where I'm going to be speaking. Uh, so it's all, it's all there. And the podcast is linked to it. So you, you can find it all there. Okay. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure uh, meeting you and speaking with you. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, this is great. This is uh, actually, honestly, one of the best interviews I've done. So anytime you want to have me back on, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to come on. I'm going to take you up on that statement. My pleasure, Brad. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did hosting it. And if you did, I would love to hear from you in the form of a review on Apple Podcasts. I had a conversation with someone earlier this week, and uh, they certainly let me know that this show could have and deserves more reviews. So that's on me to be asking more people when I'm speaking to them, but I'd be so grateful. Um, Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help the podcast to grow And when the podcast grows, that's super good for everyone involved, me, the guests, and the listeners. Um, Podcasting is something that has become both a joy and a passion for me. And there is lots of change and evolution happening in my world and in the world of the podcast that I will be delighted to share about in the next episode, which will be a long overdue solo. And if you want to connect with me, Find me and the podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and remember our Patreon community where you can get in on the conversation during our monthly Q&A and the new monthly self-care superpower sessions. I would love to have you over there as well. And if you want more information, either hit me up on social media or come on over to the website at lauratucker.com. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for free your inner guru.